I became fascinated with looking at things where they fall in a, for lack of a better word, on a timeline. You might find out something about that story that could not be anything but God. Now you're reading that and you're thinking, why do I care about idiots? Yeah, and listening to it going, I don't want to listen to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I'm a snake. I'm a slitherous snake. I'm a snake of snake. <laughs> you have the potential to do great evil or to do great good. Because what you see when you begin to look at history is that we're all connected. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith with Angie Ferris, and I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome to episode 24. We're almost finishing part one of History Through the Eyes of Faith. Episode 23, 24, we've been doing a recap. We've been going through the, the cards. Angie's here. Welcome, Angie, to episode 24. Thank you, Frank. All right, everybody, welcome. A little applause. Producer Wes is here. We got golf claps. And um, I'm excited. We're, we're wrapping up 24, well, we're wrapping up part one. 23, we went through from the beginning of creation and we went through the cards that kind of mark time like a chain link through little, little like Angie said in episode 23. Um, this is not a summary of the Bible. This is not a study of the Bible. This is just how you tell the history, how you mark time, and, and you kind of go through a timeline of the Bible in sequential order from creation to, well, episode 24, we're probably going to get to the end of A.D., so time zero, which is the, the BC, which is the birth of Christ, uh, Jesus Christ in the Christian faith to be, uh, believing to be the son of God. So this is how the time the calendar is created. And you have anything to say before we get, get jump no, into the, where we great. left off. We right. were at a card, but before we do that, I was telling a story in our break and I thought it would be a fun one to tell on the air. Okay. I have a hobby of collecting things. Uh, I, I like to collect things. I don't collect a lot of things. I collect coffee mugs. And um, that's probably the only thing I collect. I have too many of them. But each one of them kind of have a story. So I decided that I would try to collect COVID masks. Yeah. Like when people are wearing COVID masks where they work or there's, you know, they're the only ones that get those. Uh. And so I've collected two. Because the, I thought they were unique. One is a Chick-fil-A COVID mask. Well, protective mask for this pandemic. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, because I like the Chick-fil-A masks, but you'd have to work there. I even asked an employee, can you hire me? Give me the mask and then I quit. Can we do that? I'll fill out an application. Go ahead and process, get hired, get the mask and then quit. That didn't work out. But what I ended up doing was befriending a lady at the drive-thru, and she said, I get you a mask. Just come back in two weeks. She was relocating to another store, but she said, they're only $5. I can buy one. If they lost one, they have to rebuy them themselves. So she was nice enough to give me one of her masks. I get the mask. I, I bring it home, and I look, and... The tag on the mask, like who it's manufactured by, is a company called Ubi. You're going to love this. It ties into what we're doing. Have you ever heard of Ubi? Not that I know of. And you can look it up. I mean, we won't do it right now, but it's O-O-B-E. And the E on the end has a, a line over the top, so you know to pronounce it with a long E. So Ubi is the name of the company. Um, and they make clothing. They make... Uh, I think they make maybe outdoor gear, like you might find them at an REI or you might find them at a, but but they have a relationship with Chick-fil-A because I've been to a Chick-fil-A kickoff game for the SEC and the t-shirts for the kickoff game were made by Ubi, mm-hmm. okay? So they're out of Atlanta, out of Georgia. Um, they have a relationship with Chick-fil-A in some capacity, obviously, because they've made these masks and maybe they've consolidated their manufacturing. I haven't been to their website in a long time because I think they started out as an outdoor gear kind of place. Ubi stands for Out of Bible Experience. Hmm. And it started 
by Mike Pereo, who is a high school buddy of Tad Wilson. Hmm. And I met Mike at Tad's wedding in 1995. And Mike started Ubi years ago. And so I went through all this effort to get a Chick-fil-A mask to learn that it's made by a company that I actually know the owner of the company. I probably could have gotten a mask. You probably could have. But it's neat to, to see that tag on the inside. Um, the other mask that I have is from the 2021 Masters Tournament. Oh, that's a good mask to have. So it's a Masters mask that all the people that work on the tournament would have. The logo, and it's a green mask with the Masters logo on it. Um, I gave it to, to Tad because he's more of a golf dude than me, but I thought that was a cool mask to have. So that's my quick antidote stories to begin 24. And let's get into the, to the meat, to the content of where we are. We were at, we had just finished, the last card we talked about was um, uh, crossing the Jordan, right? Yes. And we had the 12 stones to remember where they were, where God provided a way. Right. That wasn't the last card because then we went on and said, Joshua crossing the Jordan, the battle of Jericho, and then judges was the last card we had. Okay. So judges. So now we're in the period of the judges where the, um, Israelites are to be following God as their King. And yet they keep serving other gods. God raises up a judge, all that's going on. There's a, another story. The next, our next lady in the, lineage of Jesus that's mentioned by name is Ruth and she has a book about her which also occurs during the time of the judges which is why the card of Ruth comes here so um and I'm just going to pause I'm not going to say much about that and when we get to the last lady there's one more in our series then I'll talk about that but Ruth is one thing I will say here she was a Moabite she was not a Jew but she married into a Jewish family kind of like Tamar Yes, and then followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, back in to Judah, and then there's a good story about her there. So the last judge was named Samuel. Samuel has a card, and the card is there to mark the end of the judges, and to also Samuel was was trying to be faithful, and God called him to anoint the first king because the people were asking for a king. And God told Samuel what to say to them about this is what's going to happen if you get a king. Are you sure you really want a king? Like you don't really need a king. Are you sure you want a king? And they said yes. And so the first king, the person that God had led Samuel to anoint was Saul. We can go back and listen to Saul's story. He did not work out. Um, He chose to focus on himself rather than God to do what he thought was best rather than specifically what God had told him was best. Sounds a little bit like the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the same story that we keep hearing all the way through, choosing our right. way over God's way. The next, so Samuel was then told to anoint a young man by the name of David. David has a very long story in the Bible. He wrote the book of Psalms, m- most of the Psalms. And David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. A lot of people remember David. They think of David and Goliath. And then the other story that they think of is what? David and Bathsheba. Right. So Bathsheba is our next card mm-hmm. because she is what this would be the fourth woman in the lineage of Jesus that's listed by name. David has an affair with her and ends up marrying her because he has her husband killed. Great story to read or hear. Go back and listen to the episode. Her card's here because she is the fourth woman, but also because she shows us David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And even though he goes very wrong in what he does By taking Bathsheba, he recognizes that when he's confronted with it, he confesses it, and he moves forward with God. He doesn't let his mistakes stand in the way of pursuing his relationship with God, of loving God and allowing God to love him. And that is the model for us because the mistakes cannot be avoided. It it seems to be part of who we are, um, at least in this life, in this time, in this body. And so he, he's a great model for persisting in relationship with God. The other thing about Bathsheba is, I was thinking about this story today. 
It doesn't say anything about how she felt. Now, after she's David's wife, there's a little bit about how she felt. But in the point of this story where David takes her, so, I mean, it's like, it's really just abuse. It's really just, hey, I want this thing. I'm going to go take this thing, and now this thing's mine. And um, yet she's still honored to be in the lineage of Jesus. Mm-hmm. She's still, God still redeems her story. Um. The other three women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, aren't Jews. But yet they're attracted enough to Judaism that they choose to follow God. They choose uh-huh. to be obedient to his ways. So there's this hint right there from the beginning that God is for more than just the Jews. Yeah. That he's calling people from other nations to come in. So that story's there in the Old Testament. Okay. Bathsheba and David have a child, not the initial child, but another child named Solomon, who becomes king after David uh, dies. can read about how that happened. Solomon was given the gift of wisdom, and because that's what he asked for, and he built the kingdom of Israel larger than any other time, and part of that building was that he built the temple. He was able to take what was the tabernacle and turn it into the temple. So we, after Bathsheba's card, we have Solomon. The next card is the building of the temple. Uh-huh. Something else about Solomon, he, he chose to, he married a lot of women from a lot of places and chose to follow their gods late in life. So that also says you can be given the gift of wisdom. That doesn't mean you make the best choices. Huh. You still have a choice of whether you're yeah. going to follow what's really the wisest thing to do, right? And so he did that. And the consequence of him doing that was after his death, his kingdom was divided between his son and another guy that became the northern kingdom of Israel. That was 10 of the 12 tribes and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And that was two of the 12 tribes. So the next card is divided kingdom. Divided kingdom. During the time of this divided kingdom is where we start hearing from the prophets. So we have a card that says the prophets. The prophets speak to that time. They speak to the time in the future the immediate future and the long distance future. And it's from the prophets that we start getting the story of the Messiah who is to come. Okay. And actually I I remember I was listening today to 12 when we talk about the prophets and I asked the question, do you think there are things in the Bible that the prophets prophesied that um, uh, haven't happened yet? And you said, Oh yeah, definitely. I find that interesting that there's prophecy in the Bible that we still yeah are waiting on. Yeah. So that happens. We start the prophets start writing their prophets to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, and we recommended our little resource tool, the timeline of Israel. There's a link to it on our website, on our uh, podcast page under resources that has all of this lined out so you can kind of see who was king of which kingdom at what time and what prophet was a prophet to them and it can become very confusing when you're reading through it. But then there arises the first empire we really hear about, which is the Assyrian Empire. That's our next card after the prophets. We talked about how they were a very aggressive, uh, aggressive, warlike. Anyway, they end up conquering the northern kingdom. So the next card is the northern kingdom of Israel falls. Okay, that falls to the Assyrians. And then another empire rises, the Babylonian Empire, which takes over the Assyrian Empire. And during the time of the Babylonian Empire, the southern kingdom of Judah falls to the Babylonian Empire. And the people are taken to Babylon. There's three different um, times. that It's over the course of three different removals that this happens. And so, and also the Babylonians destroy the temple. So the temple is destroyed down the ground and everybody's out of land. This is what God has been telling them would happen if they followed other gods and did not follow him. Isn't this called the exile? Yes, that's the next card. Next card. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah falls. Then you have the temple is destroyed. And then the next card is the exile. So this period is the exile. When Where did, which one was the Babylonian Empire? Wasn't that a card? Yeah, before the southern kingdom of okay, Judah falls. Okay. Yeah. So... The people are in exile. Uh, There was something I was going to say in there. Yeah, so God has been setting all this up. If you don't serve me first and love me above all else, that's really what it's about. Love me above all else, which they don't. You're going to be taken out of the land. So now they're out of the land. So during this exile, they're like, oh my gosh, this really happened. You know, kind of like the kid who the parent says, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, it's going to happen. And then what happens, they're really surprised. Like they didn't know you were going to follow through. 
Right. Okay. So now God has followed through. So now they're like, maybe we should study these books. Maybe we should pay more attention to what's going on. So th- during this period of the exiles, when synagogues arise, mm-hmm. one, because they have no temple to make their sacrifices, they can't worship through sacrifice. And two, because they want to study these writings. And so in communities, synagogues arise where the, the Torah, the scriptures to this point are read and studied and taught. And this whole school of thought arises and, was where we have, as we talked about later on, where we have scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and all these things, and it just becomes a whole uh, system of works and how do we understand the law? And if you don't, if you don't do this, because then I'll make you do that, and then that'll make you do that, and then I'm, you know, so it, so it's kind of like this pendulum swings all the way over to the other side. Whereas before we weren't paying enough attention, now we're like into every, we're we're losing the heart of it because we're so caught up in the. The rules. Dots, yeah, and crossing every T and dotting every I. So during the exile, another empire comes on the scene, which we've talked about extensively, which is the Persian Empire. That's the next card. And the Persian Empire overtakes everything that that has been captured to this part and becomes the largest empire almost since then, but definitely until that time. And we talked a lot about Persian influence, and, and that empire keeps coming back into our stories. But where it plays in here is the king of the Persian Empire allows Zerubbabel to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, because the Persians... Oh, and the king's name was... Either was, Cyrus or Darius. Those Cyrus. were the first two. Cyrus. It was Cyrus. And because I remember there being a verse, a very brief verse, about Cyrus's heart. Yeah, I think episode 10 is named after that. He turned his heart or something along Cyrus's heart was was led yeah. to rebuild the temple. Yeah, God told him to Cyrus needs to get some more credit. Yeah. So, the temple's rebuilt. Um yeah. Not to the splendor of it was before, but at least it's there. Then our next card after the rebuilding of the temple is Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra goes back as a teacher and a priest to help teach the people how all of these things are supposed to go down so they don't end up not doing what they should do and not putting God first. And Nehemiah is led to rebuild the wall and around Jerusalem to protect Jerusalem. So there's a lot of stories about that. And we spent some time talking about that. And that ends the actual history timeline of the Old Testament. If you go back and listen to these episodes, you'll see we go through the books of the Bible and show that by the time you finish Ezra and Nehemiah, you've finished the timeline of history. Everything else written after that actually occurred back during that. So then we moved out of the biblical timeline and went back and jumped into something that was happening around 500 BC, which is about the same time that Ezra and Nehemiah go back, a little bit after that, but during the Persian Empire. And we talked about some philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, all out of Athens in Greece. And Greek culture has then influenced everything since this time in one way or another. And so we spent some time talking about them. And then another guy comes on the scene by the name of Alexander the Great, who conquers almost all of the known world. We spent a lot of time talking about him. And so that was the next card. So after we do Ezra and Nehemiah, we do Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and then Alexander the Great. And then the next card says the spread of Hellenistic culture. Yeah which was brought about by Alexander the Great. But I found some um, more notes and information. Uh, I discovered a book on my bookshelf called Alexander the Great. and You discovered it? Yeah, it's something that I had picked up somewhere along the way and read part of it and put it on the shelf. And then I was in my office in the last couple of weeks and saw that and I'm like, I wonder if there's anything in there that needs to be brought out in the podcast because it's when we were recording on him or we had just finished some recording on him. And so there was. There's things in there. I love the way this man um, words it. And I don't have his... I, sh- I should look this up. Just give me a millisecond to come up with the author's name. Um, it's called Alexander the Great and His Time. It's, a, it's an older book, like written in the late 1990s. Maybe it was a woman, Agnes Seville. Agnes is not always a woman's name, so I don't know if it's a woman or a man, but Agnes Seville was the name of that. 
So now I need a little second to jump back over to where we were. And yeah, so I see the book and I'm looking through it and I'm like, yeah, there's some things. I, it's very eloquent. I, I don't feel like I've explained enough about that Hellenistic culture and how that influenced and changed. Maybe you as a listener thinks I have, but I want to um, share a few things. So here's some of the wordings from Mr. or Ms. Seville. I should have looked that up to find out. Alexander had started out as a crusader to avenge the invasion and destruction of the precious buildings of Greece. Remember we talked about how there's this warring between the Greeks and the Persians. and So he's taking up his dad's cause of of getting back at Persia. So he's a crusader, but later had a, had as his goal, the extension of Hellenic ways of life throughout his empire. Now, remember he was tutored by Aristotle. So he's very schooled in Greek ways of life, very much bought into that. And he wants to extend that throughout his empire. In this, he succeeded Greek democratic liberty dash freedom. No Greek democratic liberty, which is the freedom to think and to speak and the duty of the individual to take his share in the government of his city was instituted wherever he became master. Hmm. So wherever Alexander became master, which was most of the known world, the idea of freedom to think and to speak. Remember, we talked about Socrates, freedom to speak. And the duty of the individual to take his share in the government of his city, which is the republic idea, was spread throughout the known world. That's a pretty big deal. After the surrender of the robbers and semi-savage tribes of the mountainous regions of Persia, remember we talked about these invaders, who had for centuries, that's hundreds of years, been a persistent menace to life on the plains, those steppes, Alexander founded new towns and improved communications. The so-called foundation cities were built at the junction of important roads, so based on travel routes, he built these cities in positions specially chosen to assist the transit of merchandise and to command the valleys. So he was strategic in placing these cities. This was a precaution necessary for adequate military supervision to protect and to supervise. The towns were planned on the Greek pattern with a market square, school, offices, shops, temple theater, gymnasium, and often a fountain. Huh. How many town squares do we think about? And in in where does that come from? The young were given instruction in military methods and in Hellenic culture with the, its ideals of chivalrous courage. So that's, I think, a, a more eloquent way of describing what he's doing and how strategic he is in what he's doing, intentionally placing Greek culture. So tell me about the word Hellenic. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me a hard question. I didn't know. It's associated with Greek culture. I don't know how the background. I think it has to do with the goddess. Helen of Troy? Uh, Helen, something along those lines. I, I, I'll have to get back to you on that one. Okay. I don't know all the details on it. But if you hear Hellenic, it means Greek. It means yeah. spread it. And so, so our, like I said, our, our card, I think it's spread of Hellenistic culture is what the card is. So the new cities were placed near enough already existing villages to permit association with the native population. So they're not coming in and trying something new without any of the natives involved, yet so far apart that the Macedonian and Greek settlers can maintain their own custom of life. The new colonists, chiefly Greek mercenaries, old and wounded men introduced, so they were people who had been soldiers and either were too old or not able to anymore, introduced Macedonian methods of farming and agri agriculture to the mountainous, to the mountain tribes. Many married Oriental women thus began the fusing of the nations according to the plan which had been simmering in Alexander's vision for the future. So we didn't talk so much about that he had a vision for the future. Mm -hmm. We talked about it more as like militaristic and what happened afterwards. So he was planning this integration and this spread and this creating of this Greek culture throughout the world. Since his winter in Egypt in 332 to 331 B.C., the new cities in Asia provided, um, so that's when his vision of the future came. I stopped in the middle of a sentence. 
The new cities in Asia provided some solution of the unemployment during the time of the financial crisis in Greece. So it also gave places for people to go and work and establish a life when they were having trouble back in Greece. Um, Alexander had envisioned vast building projects even during his early experience in Egypt. Many great conquerors had visited the coast of that country. How came it about that a youth in his early 20s, almost at a first glance, grasped the importance of building a town on the site where he founded Alexandria and foresaw that it would develop into a center for an immense exchange of commerce between Egypt and the Western Mediterranean? And later, when he had controlled all the territory as far as a city named Patala, what far-sighted statesmanship, statesmanship enabled him to search for and to find the sea route which would encourage trade from India to Babylon? Hmm. So he looked for that and found it. And then, just before his death, what filled him with a longing to explore the Arabian shore to seek a safe path which would connect Babylon with Alexandria? So he was creating these networks on purpose. When destiny cut short his life, he had designs for the construction and the completion of buildings for dockyards, harbors, lighthouses, temples to be restored, new cities to be founded, rivers to be opened out for safe navigation, an efficient irrigation system for Babylonia, and for other derelict land. What had been accomplished were achievements of colossal dimensions. And we're taking a little bit more time on Alexander because you felt like we weren't, we didn't get into his impact as much when we got to him. Right. I'm not, it's going to be really important when we start in to part two to understand the Greek influence on what's happening in the land of Israel, um, on what's happening through, and, and the early part of the church, because the Romans end up carrying all of this out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I just felt like we should talk about that more. Um, they extended a, uh, universal language throughout the empire. We mentioned that Greek mm -hmm. and confusing mistakes had constantly occurred when financial and business transactions were conducted through the medium of interpreters. And now they had a uniform language and a uniform currency, which simplified commerce and also exchange of ideas. So it was easier to do business. Education in the Greek language extended knowledge of Hellenic culture so that nations which had followed separate lines of thought Traditions and customs, so their thoughts and their traditions and their customs have been different, became members of a common civilization, citizens of the same world. That's really going to be important when Jesus shows up on the scene, that there's this commonness between all these people now. Not only has he conquered them all, but they have a similarity. You can mm -hmm. travel from somewhere in Persia to Alexandria and be able to communicate and be able to do business and to have some understanding of what's going on in there. Um, rapid progress was made possible when Greek and Babylonian scholars collaborated in mathematics, science, and astronomy, which we've mentioned some of that. As city-states in Greece remained at variance, some called on Rome for assistance. The reputation of Athens was so high that Roman visitors regarded it as an honor to be invited to participate in the Olympic Games and to speak at public receptions. Rome gradually acquired much of the refinement of Greece. It adopted the alphabet, the art, the literature, even some of the legal methods of Greece. So that's kind of explaining like Rome was attracted to this too and took it on. So then later when we see Rome become the major predominant power, they're still continuing in that Greek thought. And, and when we talked about Rome, we said some Romans really regretted that, right? Um, and this is kind of like a, a looking back statement that this author maze, makes when he's summing up or she summing up what has happened with Alexander. He says, when one looks back upon a lifetime, one can often trace a plan. Like if you step back, like we were talking about remembering, mm -hmm. and you look back, you can see an order and a plan that you might not have seen or experienced when you were going through it as of a master designer. Hmm. He's referring to a master designer. 
which is what we're referring to in this history through the eyes of faith. Behind the scene of the conscious self of the individual, a pattern has been woven, which during the years of its gradual unfolding could not be seen nor understood. That's the point of studying history. The influence and the example of Alexander lived on, even in the years of warfare between his successors. In their different spheres, his generals, who eventually became kings, tried to copy his example, not only in war, but also by encouraging the extension of Hellenic culture and by working for the benefit of their subjects. So the next card is Greek generals, because we know when Alexander passed, after several years of turmoil, it was his kingdom was finally divided into four areas. Just put a picture up on Instagram today of that in our History Through the Eyes of Faith feed of the areas of the Greek generals. And so they too continued to spread Hellenism. We talked a little bit, I think, in last episode, no, two, three episodes ago, when we were talking about Cleopatra, how there was a fusion of Egyptian and Greek ways by the mm-hmm. Ptolemies. Okay, and and we saw when we were talking about the Jews and 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 how the Jews were pushing back against Hellenism and then how these leaders were coming in and wanting to change things. And so so there's that influence is is going on there. So the Encyclopedia Britannica says something about Alexander that this book quotes Alexander's career is one of the turning points in history. He created for the Western world the monarchical ideal. Ideal. There hadn't been an idea of a king that was a good king. The ideal king. And Alexander was that. No ruler has succeeded in making the person of the monarch respectable. Alexander made it sacred. Some would say even great. Some would call him great. Mm -hmm. He founded cities destined to become centers of Greek influence. The great majority of the lands which city life was almost unknown. For many centuries after Alexander's death, Greek was the language of literature and religion, of commerce and of administration throughout the nearer East. His empire perished at his death, but its central idea survived that of the municipal freedom of the Greek state within the framework of an imperial system. The municipal freedom of the Greek polis, city-state, within the framework of an imperial system. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about Judah under the Romans. When we're talking about these areas under the Romans, that was Alexander's idea that he, he spread, that, that others took over after him. In the East, Hellenism came in the train of the conqueror, and Rome was content to build upon the foundation laid by Alexander. Several great Romans showed a lively interest in the astonishing career of the conqueror of Asia. Julius Caesar, the emperors Trajan, and Augustus longed to emulate his exploits. Caesar um, was assassinated, we talk about. Trajan looked at the sea and concluded he was not young enough to embark on such a journey to the Far East, but he visited Babylon and paid tribute to the genius of Alexander. Augustus was the first to bestow upon Alexander the title of the Great. So it was Caesar Augustus that called him that. He placed the effigy of the Macedonian upon his signet ring and made the decision to try to copy his example in the government of his immense empire. He succeeded in founding a form of policy which ensured a peace which lasted for two centuries. Wow. So that was all influenced by Alexander. So back to our cards. We, after Alexander the Great, we have Greek generals. And then we threw in a card on the Apocrypha. Because it was written during this time period and got attached to the Septuagint. And it will come up again when we get into the 1500s. And then there's this card that says, the abomination of desolation. I bet you have no idea. You should see the look on his face. Like, we didn't talk about that. We did talk about it. I just don't know if I used that phrase or I just used it in passing. Remember when we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a descendant of the Seleucids, who got ticked off and went after the Jews. This was right before the Maccabean Revolt. He, his attitude and what he was trying to do to wipe out Judaism created the Maccabean Revolt. Well, the, one of the big things he did that was the straw that made it all happen was he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the right, Holy of yep, Holies. Right. That is referred to as the abomination of desolation in the book of Daniel Okay. as a prophecy. So we have a card that says the abomination of desolation. 
which is Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, his people sacrificing a pig on the Holy of Holies, which starts the Maccabean revolt. So the next card is the Maccabees. The period the of the Maccabees, which we now know is like 163 to 63, I think. And they end up winning the revolt. And Judah is free from imperial rule by the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans for a while. Until they get a civil war amongst the Hasmonean dynasty, which are the descendants of the Maccabeans. And they look to somebody to come and sort it out. And end up that somebody captures Judah, and that's Rome. Okay. So. And at that point, Rome is a republic. Okay. Right? And then we talked about how Rome went from being a republic to an empire. How it grew in size, and then Caesar's assassinated. And then after all these cool Game of Thrones stories, mm-hmm. uh, Augustus becomes Augustus Caesar, and because he's very politically savvy, he manages to get the Senate to actually elect him emperor. And the Roman Empire begins and lasts for almost 200 years, and it is, a, no, more than that, 300 years after that, but 200 years of peace, as this author just referred yeah, to. Yeah, and, and um, Caesar Augustus, as you said a few minutes ago, was emulating Alexander the Great. Yes, yeah. So it's... Really, Tim and I were talking. He's been listening to the podcast, and he made the comment that he thought after Jesus, Alexander the Great might be the person who had the biggest influence on history. Wow. That's kind of interesting. Think about it, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of interesting. Yeah. So that's all the cards. Now, I have a little bit... For inform- part one. Yes. that's I, I have a little bit more information I want to share, but that is that's the, end of- the story. Of the story of from creation to the Roman Empire. And I challenge you to get you a set of cards yourself and see how you do with them. See if you can remember what they refer to when you read them. Yeah. Um, and see if you can guess what the next one's going to be. Can I hold them? You can. They come with a little cover card and a key card. I've lost my key card, but they come with one. A key so, card? Yeah, so that if they get out of, out of order, you know what order they go back in. And it's so cool now. I'm so excited for you guys listening to this because you have a podcast to listen to that you can go back and you're like, oh, I don't know what's on that card. So you can just look up the podcast and you can hear that story again wow. or you and can share uh, it with a friend or whatever. I'm so excited. It is pretty neat to know that, you know, you can look at the Old Testament and and have kind of a a visual understanding of yes and, and we'll be mentioning this on the podcast sometime in the next six months probably right after the first of the year here in nashville i'll be doing just like a two-hour seminar that is an overview of the old testament where we use a visual you came to it when i did it last year mm-hmm. and i've upped my um i've upped my material so it's really cool i'm excited to use the new ones where you can see visually see the timeline of the old testament in front of you when that by the time that little two-hour things over with. Yeah, so, that's pretty neat. So we'll be advertising that here on the podcast if you want to plan your trip to Nashville um, and participate in that, how you can come and all that kind of stuff. But a little bit more information I want to share. Is that good? this yeah, a good time yeah, to go it, on? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so there's a book that we'll be using a lot moving forward called His- The History of Christianity by Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson is a great historian and has done a lot of really big, thick history books. This is one that I actually had when I was getting my master's degree decades ago. Okay. Numerous years ago. Is Paul still with us? You don't have to look that up. He's published several books since then. I don't know if he... Maybe he could be a special guest. (laughs) He's not a spring chicken if he's around, but I have no idea. I still might want to be a guest. What about the the lady that... the Kay, Kay, um... Kay Arthur? Yeah. Yeah, she's the same age as our mom. She's awesome. Would she like to be a guest? I don't know. She's pretty big. She public. Some of you out there might be familiar with Precept Ministries and all the Precept studies. Those are all Kay Arthur. She has. She's a. She's toured around speaking in like I heard her several years ago speaking with Priscilla Shire and Beth Moore. Um, yeah. But anyway, back to Paul Johnson. Okay. okay. So he wrote this history of Christianity, and so what I'm trying to convey is, what is the role of the Jews? What what do other people in this large Greek, for lack of a better word, empire, this, this period uh, after Alexander, this period 
during the Roman Empire, when Greek culture is everywhere, how do people look at Jews? What do Jews think about what's going on? Because that's important to know as we open up the New Testament. Okay, so I'm going to read some things that uh, Paul Johnson has told us. He says, at this point, we see the crucial relevance of the Jewish impingement on the Roman world. Impingement. Effect. For the Jews not merely had a God, they had God. Capital G. They had been monotheists for at least two millennia. Now, remember how we're talking about everything's becoming common. You can travel. Well, one thing that wasn't common was religion. Because mm-hmm. every place had their religion, but the Jews had the God. That was the God of everyone. They had resisted with infinite fortitude and sometimes with grievous suffering. The Jews had the temptations and ravages of Eastern polytheistic systems. So we talked about that. All of these multi-God things they've had mm-hmm. to push back against. The Jewish state might and did succumb to empires. The Jewish state did. But its religious expression survived flourished and violently resisted cultural assimilation or change. And we'll read and hear some about that in the New Testament. There was then, and there remained throughout this period, a Hellenizing party among the Jews. When you're reading the New Testament, you'll say the Hellenists this and the Hellenists that. And that's the Hellenizing party among the Jews, the ones anxious to submit to cultural process. Okay. The Jews could not provide stability for themselves, and the Romans did not find it easy either, chiefly because they could not decide on the constitutional status of their acquisition. The Romans couldn't. A recurrent problem in their empire. They couldn't figure the Jews out. Confronted with a stiff-necked subordinate people, that would be the Jews, with a strong cultural tradition of their own, the Romans always hesitated to impose direct rule, except preferring instead to work with a local strongman, which we've talked about, personally attached to Rome, who could deal with his subjects in their own vernacular, in their own language of law and custom. Such a man could be rewarded and contained if successful, dropped and replaced if he failed. And that's what we saw when we were talking about all that turnover after the Maccabees coming up to the time of Jesus. And, but Herod is one of these guys. Herod is a guy that the Romans can keep their finger on. He has a relationship with the locals, and that's kind of how they deal with things. This Judea was placed under the new province of Syria, which we talked about, ruled by a governor in Antioch, and local authority was entrusted to um, kings if they proved themselves sufficiently durable and ruthless. Under the Syrian province, Herod, who seized the Judean throne in 43 BC, was confirmed as king of the Jews four years later and granted Roman approval and protection. Herod was the type of man with whom Rome preferred to deal, to the point where they accepted and endorsed his arrangement for dividing his kingdom after his death among three sons, Archelaus, who got Judea, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas. The division was not entirely successful, for in AD 6, Judea had to be placed in direct Roman custody under a succession of procurators. AD 6. Yeah, AD 6. 6. So in year 6, so by the time, according to this, it sounds like by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, it's under procurators. So Herod the Great had a little bit more authority than the Herod of Jesus' time is going to have. Nevertheless, especially in its early decades, under Herod the Great, Rome's relationship with the Jews was fruitful. Now, this is what's interesting. There was already a huge Jewish diaspora. Do we remember what that word means? Uh, Yeah. um, Separated. Dispersed, yes. Dispersed, yeah. So, remember, after the exiles, they didn't all come back. Just because the temple was rebuilt, they didn't all return. So, especially in the great cities of the Eastern Mediterranean, Alexandria, Antioch, Tarsus, Ephesus, and just as an aside, when we start talking about the Apostle Paul, he was from Tarsus. So he was part of that Jewish diaspora. Alexandria, Antioch, Tarsus, Ephesus, and so forth. Rome itself had a large and rich Jewish colony there in Rome itself. During the Herodian years, the diaspora expanded. So there was even more Jews spreading out, and it flourished. The empire, meaning the Roman Empire, gave the Jews equality of economic opportunity and freedom of movement for goods and persons. So they could trade goods, they could 
move around as people. They formed wealthy communities wherever the Romans had imposed stability. And in Herod, they had a munificent and powerful patron. To many Jews, he was suspect, and some refused to recognize him as a Jew at all, not on account of his voluptuous and exceptionally violent private life, but because of his Hellenic attachments. But Herod was unquestionably generous to the Jews. In Jerusalem, remember we talked about this, he rebuilt the temple on twice the scale of Solomon. So we were talking about how that temple was really large, I think two episodes back. It's twice mm-hmm. as large as Solomon's temple. This huge and magnificent enterprise was still uncompleted at his death in 4 BC and was finished in Jesus' lifetime. It was large and expensive, even by the standards of Greco-Roman architecture and one of the great tourist sites of the empire, an impressive symbol of a fierce, living, expanding religion. Let that sit in a minute. They've built this huge temple. It's one of the greatest sites of the empire, and it's an impressive example of of a fierce, living, expanding religion. So Judaism has got a place, mm-hmm. and it's spread out. It's not just local to just these people in mm-hmm. this area. Um, Herod was equally generous to the diaspora Jews, the Jews that were dispersed. In all the big cities, he provided them with community centers, and he endowed and built scores of synagogues where services were held for the dispersed. In the great Roman cities, the Jewish communities gave an impression of wealth, increasing power, self-confidence, and success. So they were attractive to other Romans. Within the Roman system, they were exceptionally privileged. Many of the diaspora Jews were already Roman citizens, and all Jews since the days of Julius Caesar, who greatly admired them, enjoyed rights of association. So they So were, they're they're doing they're they're in a good position. Yeah, and they're connected. This meant that they could meet to hold religious services, community dinners and feasts, and for every kind of social and charitable purpose. The Romans recognized the strength of Jewish religious feelings of social and uh, of by in effect exempting them from observance of the state religion. So Jews were exempted. In place of emperor worship, the Jews were allowed to show their respect for the state by offering sacrifices on the emperor's behalf. This was a unique concession. Most groups didn't get this. Almost no other groups got this. The wonder is that it was not more resented. But the diaspora Jews were on the whole admired and imitated rather than envied. They were not in the least self-effacing. They could, when they chose, play a leading role in municipal politics, especially in Egypt, where they were perhaps over a million strong, over a million Jews in Egypt. Some had notable careers in the imperial service. Among these were passionate admirers of the Roman system. You'll recognize one of these names, like the historian Josephus. We mentioned him. Um, or the philosopher Philo. While the Jews of Judea, and still more so of semi-Jewish areas like Galilee, tended to be poor, backward, obscurantist, narrow-minded, fundamentalist, uncultured, the diaspora Jews were expansive, rich, cosmopolitan, well-adjusted to Roman norms and to Hellenic culture, Greek-speaking, literate, and open to ideas. So I think that's important for us to hear um, for several reasons. They were anxious to spread their religion, these diasporous Jews. They were proselytizers, often passionately so. Do you know what that means, proselytizers? Yeah, they were um, trying to get more people to, to follow them. Yes, and to, to follow their God, to come yeah. into Judaism. Yeah. Um, throughout this period, some Jews at least had universalist aims and hoped that Israel would be the light of the Gentiles. That word universalist comes up a lot. What does that mean? Uh, a global expanse, a um, trying to get uh, trying to get that religion to grow. Yeah. Yeah. Universalist means also that it applies to everybody. That everybody can be a part of it, which is kind of what Greek culture was, right? It was going in and saying everybody can participate in this. So it's creating this environment on the earth that we have not seen before in that everybody is now connected. Everybody can, almost everybody, but we even saw how China is trading with the Roman Empire through the Indians and the Arabs, okay? So there's there's a connection. There's We mentioned the global economy. Judaism was a part of that, and 
people knew Jews. Um, it says here that perhaps that there were the diaspora included as many as 4.5 million Jews to 1 million that actually lived in Palestine, in Judea, in that area. Um, yeah, so I'm, a large portion of these people were not Jewish by race, nor, nor were they full Jews in the religious sense. That is, few of them were circumcised or expected to obey the law in all its rigor. Most of them were God-fearers. They recognized and worshipped the Jewish God, and they were permitted to mingle with synagogue worshipers to learn Jewish law and customs. But they were not generally expected to become full Jews. They had intermediate status of various kinds. Um, and it talks a little bit about what their statuses were. The Jews throughout were admired for their stable family life, for their attached excuse me, attachment to chastity while avoiding the excesses of celibacy for the impressive relationships that they sustained between children and parents for the peculiar value they attached to human life for their abhorrence of theft and their scrupulosity in business. But even more striking was their system of communal charity. They had always been accustomed to remit funds to Jerusalem for the upkeep of the temple and the relief of the poor. So during the Herodian period, they also developed in the big diaspora cities elaborate welfare services for the indigent, the poor, the sick, the widows and orphans, prisoners and incurable. These arrangements were much talked about and even imitated. And of course, they became a leading feature of the early Christian communities and a principal reason for the spread of Christianity. Christianity in the cities. So we see how what's going on with the Jews has paving the way for Christians. Because yeah. we'll talk about this a lot when we get into part two. But Christianity started as a sect of Judaism. So the early Christians had all of these right. same benefits that the Jews had. That and the thing that I particularly want to point out here is how they were attractive to other people in throughout the Roman world yeah, and respected. Um, is any of that striking you as new information? Yeah, as I think so. I think I didn't know the culture of the Jews at this time. Um, I, I guess I had made up in my mind that, you know, Jesus comes on the scene and there are followers of the law. There are Pharisees, there are Sadducees, there's a, a, a belief system that he comes up against, but I did not know where the Jews kind of fit in society, and you know their their uh, the, the 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 reach that they had, where they were ge geographically, and things like that. Yeah, so they're spread out all over the place, and I think it's very possibly very much like today. I haven't been to Israel, but when you go there, you experience a my understanding, a stricter Judaism than you're going to experience in Nashville. Okay. And so what this author seems to be telling us is what's happening in Judea might not be. And the approach that the more funda fundamentalist dot your I's and cross your T's Jews are there at Jerusalem. And that there's more of a, cosmopolitan feel to Judaism throughout the rest of the kingdom. Okay. So just a few points I want to make. We'll finish up part one. I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth. Um, I can't either, quite honestly, <laughs> because this is a long episode. <laughs> Sorry. It feels a lot longer to you because you've had to sit there and listen to me talk. Hellenization is a move toward uni universalism. We understand that phrase. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Alexander had this dream of the brotherhood of all men, and we're seeing how that's getting played out as he's gone. Something that works for everybody in thoughts, in beliefs, in government, in economy. The Jews are dispersed and modeling values that the Greeks respect. We've also talked about the Greek philosophies and how they talk about a reality that this world is modeled after. Remember that with with Plato in particular, but this idea of there is a reality that exists beyond us and we are but a shadow of it. That's part of Greek culture and that's getting spread out throughout the world, which is laying the ground for the entrance. Mm -hmm. um, there is a desire for meaning that everybody can be a part of. 
We're seeking a universalist religion, something that can apply to everybody. Right here at the beginning of the entrance. Language and concepts are now common for explaining eternal meaning throughout. And we have Roman roads and trade routes that connect almost all the known world. So the question is, can you see from what we've talked about how this is why Jesus came when he came? Well, the stage was set for mental capacity, willingness to think outside of, uh, I mean, Socrates, when he came on the scene, it became this idea of thought. Now that we, now that we've not been fighting each other, now that we've not been figuring out where our next meal's coming from, let's start thinking outside of what else is there. And so now that's become kind of a common thing in a more geographical spread area with trade, with economics, with language, with um, the cities that Alexander created and the type of government that he's created. It's kind of set a platform for, well, now what? Kind of a, uh, how, how can we all become part of the same thing? Right. I think it helps us understand when Christianity shows up, how it was able to spread so quickly, um, how it... Uh, May caught on fire. Mm-hmm. How people were hungry for the message that was there. Mm-hmm. But we'll get all in, into all that as we continue into the next episode. Um, I hope we set the stage. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm very excited. Well, yeah, I I think this is. I am too. I'm excited about. I mean, the fact that we've gone through. And set the stage, and I've learned a lot. And especially in the last few episodes, I've learned a lot about the Greek culture and the and the environment and the fact that Cleopatra was just a, a few dozen hundred decades or whatever it was <laughs> before Christ. Oh, not even, yeah, decades. It wasn't even a hundred. Yeah, I, I meant, yeah, I meant a few decades. I don't know what I was talking yeah. about. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see how it overlaps and the the calendar conversation that we had a couple episodes ago. Yeah. All of it has been educational and interesting to me. And it just gets, I hope better. I think so. It's so cool. Yeah. And there's a a bag that we talked about in 23 that I said, we're going to wait to 24 and it is a gift bag with white tissue paper, which gets me excited because I don't know what it is, but probably has nothing to do with me because last episode was Kevin Chesney (laughs) Not yeah. last two episodes I can't bring ago. you a gift every time, or maybe even every other time. No, but so hence, um, it's something that I'm going to be. It's going to be very important. Well, it's a new purchase. A new purchase. Very important to me over the next couple of weeks because you're going to be traveling across the country uh-huh. in a van mm-hmm. and sleeping in it. Yeah. Uh, is it a, a porta potty? No, no, it's not. Is it a coffee grinder? No, it's not. Those are good guesses. It's something to do with living in the van. Yes. All right. It's a nightlight. No, but all of those things, except for the porta potty, are those two things are related to it. The two things. The nightlight and the coffee grinder. Uh huh. It's a generator. Sort of. Okay, well, let's just reveal. Reveal? Well, I'll let you reveal. Here, you open it up. All right. Hey, Producer Wes, can you add some sound effects like I'm opening a bag? <laughs> That's really good. Okay, hold on. That's a little too loud. Oh, my gosh. Can you add some tissue paper sounds? That's good. All right. Okay, turn it off. There you go. Yep. It's a power inverter. DC to AC inverter. Yep. This is for the laptop. No. It, yes, it's for the laptop. It's for the van so that we can plug things in, in mm-hmm. the van. But it's particularly for my blender. Your blender for the margaritas. <laughs> what they always say yes because 
No, it's not margaritas. It's smoothies. I have smoothies for breakfast every morning. I have and smoothies for breakfast no, every it's very, morning. Just some nutritional smoothies, and it's this very a, important. I bet it's going to make a little bit of noise. It's got it, some USB ports on it. Yeah, I think it should be good. So there's a really funny story. Can I share with you the funny story? You can. So there's been a lot. Have it we talked be about funny? Have we talked about bears? Bears. Bears. B e a r s. Bears. Bears. The bears. Have we talked about it? You on the trip? Yeah. Like we're a little concerned because about the bears. Because the bears follow their nose and they're really smart and they get what they want. And so if you have anything that they want, even in a car. They can just peel off the sides and get it. That it's there's YouTube videos you can watch. Yeah, okay, well, they'll wake you up before the car side comes off. Uh, I think so too. And so they have. Um, they also you, have. You crank that baby up when see, it starts rocking. Yes. <laughs> so they also have. They come after toiletry. Like like one of the article blogs I was reading said, you don't know like which of your toiletry items have a scent that they want. So you got to put those under lock and key and all this kind of stuff. And we're going to be out west. It, yeah, there will be bears around, well, you know. Uh, you know that when we were camping, when I was in Boy Scout, uh, yeah. we'd have to hang yeah. your stuff from a yeah. tree. So we're night. probably not going to be hanging stuff from a tree. Uh, yeah. There's also other things. I've investigated all this. So there's been a lot of discussion in our family text about bears and should we really be concerned about this and what should we take and do we need some... Yeah, many people die every year from a bear attack. Yeah, right. But... A woman, yeah, anyway, won't get off on that. That just happened recently, but she was in a tent. Anyway, so, and my daughter finds it very entertaining that I travel with a blender. Okay? (laughs) And producer Wes is over there going, yes, I can see the entertainment factor in that. We were recently on a family trip in San Antonio for several days, and we were in a hotel room that had a kitchen, and, you know, it was really more like a suite thing. It had a couple of bedrooms. And, um... She got there a couple of days into the trip, and she's like, did you bring that blender? <laughs> did that, is that your blender, or was that here? And I'm like, yeah, it's my blender. So travel with the blender. So, yes, the blender is, is going with me on the trip, and we needed a converter, so we got the converter. So there's been all these discussions about it. So on the family text a few days ago, Sarah is, um, that's my daughter, our daughter. She is working in, currently her job has her on a project where she's in like a work trailer with other engineers doing all this intensive computer work all day and it's tight quarters and these are all these people they work with and so all these conversations go on. And so we get this text that says, um, her co-worker's name's John. John is currently calling me a bad daughter because I won't get you guys a Milwaukee battery and adapter for Mom's Blender for the road trip. And she yeah. sends she sends a picture of the the just the adapter part okay yeah and so we laugh oh that's funny and then she says this is what's great i believe the quote was they're going to get mauled by bears because they can't get away because they drained the car battery making smoothies and it will be your fault yeah (laughs) so that was my funny i thought we thought that was hilarious yeah uh, yeah, it's hilarious so now we've just been talking about oh we got mauled by bears because we couldn't crank the car and get away because we drained the battery making smoothies no it only takes one minute to make the smoothie and we're going to crank the car when we do it so no draining of the battery we're good um gosh you said something oh it was about sarah um as we wrap up 24, I always, and it took me, I forgot it, but Sarah is in engineering and that she's a minority when it comes to women in that field. And there's a lot of men, the ratios for men to women, a lot of men, few women. Yeah. And there was a phrase, I don't know if she said it or if a, a friend said it years ago about, you know, the opportunity to find a husband in that field is high. But the phrase was, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. She would totally agree. The goods, the odds are good, but the goods <laughs> are odd. Don't know how many times we've had a conversation. She goes, Mom, he's an engineer. Yeah. Like, or I remember one of her first jobs, she got assigned to travel with this guy and they had to do like long road trips. And she's like, we talked a lot for engineers. You know, she'd mm. make these comments about, anyway. 24 is in the books, and oh. we're going to get to 25 
uh, I don't even know when we're going to get to that. Well, we'll talk about it. Yeah, but as far as these folks listening, next week, next week, <laughs> episode twenty-five will be week. there for Sometime you sometime next, next week. week. All right, but well, that whenever that is, will be after this trip, and I can't wait to come back with our road trip stories and yeah, see how that all goes. With well, the, hope you have a safe one. Thank you. All right, enjoy the uh, the adapter. Will do. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Brought to you by One Thing Only. Find us online at onethingonly.org. Click on History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast for more information, reference material, our social media links, as well as a way to contact us to leave questions or comments. We will soon be streaming on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review. Thanks again for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast.